thank you, Lord, for this bill that was voted down last week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Let's just begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is your identity? You know, when you used to ask that question, you would reach in your billfold for your driver's license, right? Or you would reach for your passport, and it's the thing that has your picture and your date of birth and maybe your social security number on it, and this is my ID, my identity. But now when I ask you that question, the very word identity is freighted with all kinds of cultural and political baggage. What's your identity? Well, let me try to narrow that down. What's your religious identity? How would you describe yourself religiously? Maybe you would say, I'm a Christian. Well, that's good. A lot of people would claim that title as Christian. What does that mean? Well, maybe you would say, well, I'm a Protestant Christian. And that might divide you from Roman Catholicism and put you in a different camp. Well, you might say, I'm an evangelical Christian. That has to do with the proclamation of the gospel, which would be a substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Maybe you'd say, I'm a Baptist. And that might even further distinguish you in your identity religiously. 
And we have these labels that we talk about and we speak of that maybe you know what they mean and maybe you don't. Maybe you would claim them, maybe you wouldn't. My question is, if you ask the Apostle Paul, what are you? Or what is your religious identity? What do you think he would say? I can't be dogmatic, but I tend to think Paul would say, I am in Christ. I say that because when Paul describes who he is as a religious person, he uses that phraseology over and over and over again. 89 times in the New Testament, it's used in Christ. And 85 of those times, it's Paul using it in his epistles. And that doesn't even include the times that Paul speaks of like being in the Lord or just in him. I didn't take time to run down those. But Paul constantly is talking about himself and other believers that this is their identity now. It's being in Christ, united to Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Well, how did the Apostle Paul come to be in Christ? How did he come to understand what it means to be in Christ? Why is that so important to him? Tonight, I want to walk you through some scriptures. I don't necessarily have an outline. I'll try to be clear, but I just want to put some thoughts together and some passages together. I don't have a, a PowerPoint for you to look at, so you're going to have to follow the train of thought with me through these passages of scripture. But if you do, I think it will be very, very helpful to understand what it means to be in Christ and why this was so important to the Apostle Paul. How did Paul come to be in Christ? Well, obviously, this would have been something that happened uh, in Paul's conversion when he became, we could say, a Christian. And we're fortunate that the New Testament speaks a lot about that event. In fact, in the book of Acts, it's given three times. In Acts chapter 9, we're given the event as it happened, Paul on the road to Damascus. Young people, do you remember Paul on the road to Damascus? Remember that story from Sunday school? How he was traveling on the road to Damascus, and there a bright light from heaven shone upon him. That's what we're talking about. That is recorded in Acts chapter 9. But it's also recorded two more times later in the book of Acts where Paul, in his own testimony, testifies about that before Roman officials. And he says, here's what happened. I was persecuting the church on the road to Damascus. So we have the facts and the events of Paul's Damascus road conversion. But what we're interested in is not merely what happened externally and what Paul describes in those events, what I really want to know is what was going on inside Paul's head? What was going on in his heart? What, what had even led up to that? And fortunately, the New Testament gives us a great deal of information about this. We know more about Paul's inner spiritual experience than any of the other apostles. Mostly because he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But in doing so, he's relaying his heart 
to these believers that he's writing to throughout the first century world. And he's telling them, here's my experience. Here's what was going on in my heart. And so when we come to Philippians chapter 3, this is exactly what Paul is doing. He's, he's pulling back the curtain, as it were, and he's showing, this was my thought process. This is, this is how I was behaving before I came to Christ, and this is what it meant for me now to be in Christ. And he's giving us a glimpse of what was going on inside and how significant it was for him to be in Christ. Now, in context, Paul is dealing with false teaching that seemed to follow him everywhere and certainly had crept up in Philippi. If you look at verse 2, Paul tells these believers, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's speaking of what is called the Judaizers. These were Jews who followed the Old Testament regulations had professed to follow Christ and understand who Jesus was and received him. But for the Judaizer, in order to be saved and made right with God, you had to have Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Those two things together, Jesus plus Mosaic law equals salvation. And this crept up oftentimes in Paul's letters that we've even seen recently. Pastor Andrew directed our attention to that in the book of Galatians, which deals prolifically with that. And whenever Paul deals with this issue of somebody saying, Jesus plus something equals salvation or my acceptance with God, Paul typically answers that with what it means to be in Christ. That that is not being in Christ. But when you're in Christ, that doesn't matter. And that's what he's doing in Philippians chapter 3. In context, he's addressing this false teaching. And now he's going to use his own personal example and his credentials to address this issue. In fact, Paul's going to say this. If you want to talk about the way these Judaizers think, let me explain that to you because I was one of them. Let me tell you exactly how the thought process goes and why it is insufficient. And that's what he's doing, and that's why he gives this list of things that was a concern to him, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3. So what was it like for Paul before he came to faith in Christ, before he became in Christ, as it were? Well, look at what he says in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He says, I could be like these Judaizers and have confidence in what I've done for the Lord to gain acceptance with him. Verse 4, the end, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I actually have more. And now he's going to list where his confidence was prior to coming to Christ. He first of all lists his pedigree. Verse 5. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, did Paul have anything to do with that? Did Paul have anything to do with that? No, who did? His parents. So what Paul is saying this way, he's talking about a pedigree. He's saying, I actually had God-fearing parents. I came from this good stock, as it were, and they followed the law religiously. In eight days, just like the law said, they brought me into the temple, and there they performed the rite that God had commanded Moses. 
In addition, he says, I was of the people of Israel. And again, a part of his pedigree. He's just saying, I was, I was a Jewish, born into the commonwealth of Israel, as it were, the household of God, as it was often stated. I was a part of those God-chosen people. He also says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I don't know that he's saying that Benjamin is anything particular, although I'm sure Paul was proud of that. But what he means by that is, I can actually trace my heritage. That there were others who, who couldn't, and perhaps it wasn't important to them to figure out what tribe they were from, but that was always important among God's people. And Paul is saying, I can actually trace my inheritance back to Benjamin. I, I, I come from this line of people that knew our heritage was important, and I can trace it for you. Finally, what he says in verse 5 is that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And that's important because Paul maintained his Hebrew identity. We know from the book of Acts that after the church was begun at Pentecost, that there was a mixture within the church of the Hebrews and the Grecians. Remember, there was an argument over the widows, and it feared, there was fear that some of the Hebrew widows were being disdained for the Grecian widows, or vice versa. I forget how that goes. But Well, what was the difference between those two groups? Well, you had the Hebrew of Hebrews. Those are people that maintain their Hebrew identity primarily by maintaining their Hebrew tongue. They studied the law in its original language. They maintained that prestige, and they were proud of their Hebrew ancestry. You also had Hebrews, though, of the church that had adopted the culture in which they live, most likely living outside of Jerusalem, and they adopted the Greek culture. Not the bad part of the Greek culture, but they adopted the language because that was the trade language, and maybe they didn't even know Hebrew, but they could read Greek, and their Bible was the Septuagint. But Paul says, I didn't live in Jerusalem, he was from Tarsus, but he says, I maintained my Hebrew identity because that was important. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he speaks of his pedigree. Now, if you go and you talk like this, you're not speaking like this to be humble. You're speaking of it as a matter of dignity. If I were to come up here tonight and say, guess what, did you know that I and a descendant of George Washington? That's not true, as far as I know. But if I said that, why am I saying that? It's a matter of, of pride. This is who I am, and I'm proud of it, and I want everybody to know it. And so Paul, enlisting these things, he's saying this was his mindset. This is my pedigree. I'm proud of this religious heritage. I boast in it. The other thing Paul says is that he was boasting in his performance. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, as to the law, he was what? He was what? A Pharisee. And what is a Pharisee? These were those that held to strict conformity to the Mosaic law. We have within, even today, evangelicalism, broad evangelicalism, you have conservative and liberal theologians. Okay, I'm not talking about lifestyle, I'm talking about theology. And you have the more liberal theologians, many of which are, do not know the Lord, 
unsaved. They might claim the term evangelical, but they're not. And, but they're liberal in their theology because they don't believe everything about the Bible. And then you have conservative theologians that take it literally and interpret it literally. And you have those two camps. You had the same thing in Judaism. You had the Pharisees, and where do you think they were on that spectrum? They were the conservatives. They, they believed what the Bible had said. In fact, they were so earnest with keeping it that they actually prescribed laws around it to guard it. And then you had the Sadducees, and they were the more liberals. They didn't hold everything uh, uh, literally. And that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't hold, that'll help you in the future, right? They were more liberal in that regard, okay? Paul says when it comes to being in earnest about keeping God's law, I was a Pharisee. I was of that conservative ilk. And he says, the end of verse 6, as to righteousness under this law or as to being in earnest to keep this law, not just know it in my head, but work it out in my life, he was what? What does it say? Blameless. Do you think Paul means sinless? I mean, is there anyone here that would actually be, have the gall to claim that? I, I, Paul's not saying he was sinless what he's saying is this. There was nothing on my conscience. I had satisfied my conscience in keeping that law. Primarily that happens by way of comparison. Horizontal comparison. I can look at other people and say, well, I'm not perfect, nobody is, but I'm not like... And I feel pretty good about myself. I'm relatively blameless in this, okay? I mean, no one's going to come and accuse me of something. I'm a pretty upstanding citizen. So I don't think he's saying sinless, not perfection, but what he's saying is this, I wasn't sin conscious. And what we're going to find out is at this point, Paul didn't understand the depths to which God's law, the point at which it had certain demands upon him. So this is Paul's performance. And then notice this, verse 6. So we have his pedigree, verse 5, his um, performance. He's a Pharisee. He's blameless under the law. Look at the beginning of verse 6. As to zeal, he was a what? Persecutor of the church. He says, this was my mindset I'm a spiritual man. I have these spiritual endeavors. I've worked all my life for this. This is what really drives me. And in fact, I'm going to stamp out the heretics. And he persecuted the church. That, that shows his zeal for these things. Now, why did Paul persecute the church? Why do you think he persecuted the church? You might be tempted to think, well, he persecuted the church because he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were those strict conservatives regarding the law, and this was an aberration to them of their law, and so he was stamping it out. But that's not the case. How do we know this? Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 records for us the arrest of 
the apostles after once again they've preached the gospel and they're arrested again by leadership in Jerusalem. And we're told at verse 28 that this council that had arrested them, they drag them before the council, and in verse 28 they say to these apostles, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. No more teaching about Jesus. You filled Jerusalem with it. We're tired of it. Verse 29, Peter answers, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Verse 32, Peter says, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when the council heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. They say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to persecute them and take their life. Verse 34, but a what? Pharisee in the council named who? Gamaliel. Remember that name. He's a teacher of the law. He was held in honor by all the people. He stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis arose up, claiming to be somebody, a number, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. And it says that the council listened to Gamaliel. They threatened them, certainly, but they let them go. Okay, so that was the Pharisees' position on this. Let's just let this run its course and see if it dies out. Now, why is Gamaliel important? Look at Acts 22. Look at verse 3. Paul is speaking here. In his defense, he says in verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Remember that place too. But brought up in the city, educated at the feet of who? Gamaliel. So if Paul's persecuting the church because he's a Pharisee, he's actually going against his rabbi's position. Maybe he did, but I tend to not think so. Why is Paul persecuting the church? Why does he say, I was zealous about this? What was going on inside of him? Well, it did have something that was going on inside of him prior to the time he came to conversion to Christ. What was going on? He gives us a glimpse. Look at Romans chapter 7. Recently, in our family devotions, we've been reading through Romans, and we came to Romans 7, and I explained to those left in my household, there are two positions on Romans 7. Some people think Romans 7 is describing Paul before he was saved. Some people think it was Paul after he was saved, and he's talking about his battle with sin after he was saved, and we had a vigorous debate. And we went through that. And I want to say there are good, God-fearing people on both sides. 
my own personal position, although it tends to fluctuate, to be honest with you. Because I read this and I say, I, I see that. And I read it through another lens and I say, I see that. Either way, I throw that out there just in case you're aware of that debate. Because I, what I'm saying to you now is, we know what was going on in Paul's head before he was saved. And you might say, ah, but Romans 7 is after Paul was saved. And all I'm going to say is this, whether it's before or after, Paul's describing the same sin struggle he had. Does that make sense? This was his sin struggle. Okay? So Romans 7, <clears throat> look at verse 7. Paul writing, he says this, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is not the problem. When it comes to sin, God's law is not the problem. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to what? To covet if the law had said, you shall not what? Now you think about it, in the law, let's go with the Ten Commandments. There are those Ten Commandments, particularly in the second part of the law, that have a lot to do with what a person does. Do not lie, do not steal, do not commit murder. When you come toward the end of the list, you get to this command, you shall not covet. That's not so much an action, but a what? An attitude. It's something inside of me. And Paul says, when it came to the law, and I was thinking about the law, he says in, in Philippians 3, I was blameless with regard to the law, but Paul tells us in Romans 7, but there was one that really bothered me. It was this one of coveting. What is coveting? It's desiring that which God has not given me. It's desiring more than God has allowed me to have. It's my wanting, okay? And Paul says, this is the thing that, that kind of got under my skin. This is the thing that bothered him. In fact, he says this in verse 10 of Romans 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Here's what he says. It's this commandment, these 10 commands that God had given. Maybe it's all the 600 commands of the Old Testament that Paul was trying to keep. He said, these things promise life. If you keep them, you'll live. And Paul says, but when it came to that, you shall not covet. It showed me I was dead. It showed me I was spiritually dead. It promised life, but all it did was show me I can't do it. It's death. So here's the question. Why was it coveting that revealed Paul's sin? Or in other words, what did Paul covet? What did he want? Think about Paul. He was excelling. He had everything. Hebrew of the Hebrews religious pedigree, taught at the feet of Gamaliel. In fact, we're told in Galatians chapter 1, uh, in fact, let's turn there. Let's look at that. Here, here's what Paul had. Look at Galatians 1. Verse 
Verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. We'll stop there. And what Paul is saying there in Galatians 1, especially in verse 13, he's trying to be modest, I think, but he's saying, you know what I was like as a Pharisee. I was at the top of my class. I was excelling above everybody else. I mean, when it came to who are the up-and-coming great thinkers of Judaism, Paul's name would have been on the lips of the leaders of that day. Here's a guy we really need to watch for. He's gifted. He's excelling. This is what Paul had this kind of prestige, this, this honor for his religious pursuits, which he enjoyed, that's what he had. And I tend to think that Paul liked that kind of notoriety. And that's what he had until he met Stephen. Because that's when the problem began. I want you to look at Acts chapter 6. Are you with me? All right. Why did Paul persecute the church? Okay. It has something to do, I believe, with this coveting in him, this thing that he desired and he wanted, he couldn't have. He was excelling. Well, what was it that he wanted? Seems like he had everything. And then look at Acts chapter 6. Notice with me verse 8. We're introduced to Stephen. Actually, we're introduced to him back at the earlier in the chapter. He's one of the deacons chosen by the congregation. We're told of Stephen um, in verse 5 that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And now we read more about Stephen in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen's in Jerusalem. He's preaching Christ. He's, he's, his message is confirmed by those signs. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you read Acts chapter 6 and verse 9, you probably just read right over those things and you don't think about it. But that is a profound piece of information the Holy Spirit includes for us that is vital. Why? What is this synagogue of the freed men? Well, we're told it was kind of an ethnic national synagogue, and there were people in Jerusalem from these different parts of the empire, these Hebrews that came, and this is where they worshiped. It's kind of like if you send your child to Europe, and they're going over there, and they're going to worship in a church over there, and you say there is a church for expats. Find that church. It'll be in your language. You'll know some of the culture. 
and they'll be able to help you, right? Well, these are people from outside of Jerusalem, and they're sent, and they're coming to this synagogue, so it's like, find your people there, and that's where you'll worship. And the people in the synagogue of the freedmen, they're from Cilicia. Who's from Cilicia? Tarsus is in Cilicia. Who's in this synagogue? Paul's in this synagogue. He's there studying abroad, right? At the feet of Gamaliel. But where's he worshiping? In the synagogue of the freedmen. And it so happens that those in this synagogue, the end of verse 9, they rose up and they did what with Stephen? They got in debate with him. And they were disputing with him. And they were talking to him about this Christ and what he meant. And then look what happens. Verse 10, they could not withstand what? The wisdom and the capital S spirit with which he was speaking. Paul, rising on the charts. Here's the guy to watch out for. This is an A student. And you've got this guy, Stephen, from this rubble ruck of people that are creating the stir in Jerusalem about some crucified Messiah, and they get into debate, and Paul's like, I can't outwit this guy. The things he's saying. I think that's the thing that Paul's talking about in Romans 7. I wanted what Stephen had. And I knew I didn't have it. I think that's the thing that's getting to Paul. He didn't have what Stephen possessed. This absolute conviction. And even this gracious spirit about the relationship he had with God. And the way that he could speak of it. And so if you don't have what this man possesses, you do one of two things. Either you join it or you kill it. And initially, Paul chose the latter. And we know that chapter 7 records Stephen's sermon. And then when you come to the end of that sermon in verse 54, they actually stoned Stephen and were told that they laid their garments, as they took their garments off to lean over and pick up the stones and kill Stephen because they couldn't withstand his wisdom and spirit, they throw their clothes at the feet of who? Saul of Tarsus. Why? Because he was probably organizing the riot. And he was going to make sure that it was carried out according to the law. This is a proper stoning. Because... Here's the prime student, and he'll make sure it's done with proper etiquette, right? It's in Stephen that Paul first encounters Christ. Now, do people encounter Christ when they meet you? I don't mean can you badger them and back them into a corner with your knowledge of the Bible. I mean, when you talk to them, when you discuss with them spiritual things, 
do they encounter Christ in you? I think this is Paul's first introduction to what it means to be in Christ. He saw that in Stephen. In fact, he saw it in the way Stephen died. It's uncanny how much like Jesus' death Stephen models. And this is where Paul first sees this guy's in Christ. I don't think he's making this connection here in Acts 7. But when we get back to Philippians 3, you'll see the connection. And then what happens to Paul? He's, he's on the Damascus Road. Chapter 9. And there then the bright light comes upon him. And Jesus confronts him and reveals himself to him and says, Paul, Paul, Saul, sorry, Saul. Why are you persecuting who? Me. Saul, you're going after these people. It's me you're going after. And again, I think there's this echo of a reminder that these people are in Christ. There's a, there's a union here. There's a unique connection that Jesus even adopts, that these are my people, and when you persecute them, you're persecuting me. Now go back to Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, this was all prior to my conversion, prior to being in Christ. What was important to me? My religious credentials, my pedigree, my performance, my zeal in this persecution. These things were what I really held on to. These are the things that made me. They were my identity. Now look at Philippians 3 and verse 7. Paul says, whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of who? Christ. Paul says, all of those things that I wanted, that I coveted, the religious positions, the pedigree, the zeal, all those things I was after, I chucked them out the window because I found the real thing. And that was not another religious system. It was a person to be in Christ I saw that in Stephen, and that's I knew what I needed. So he says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all those things. And I count them as rubbish or trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found, how? In Him. This is what I am. I'm no longer a religious person because of my pedigree and all these things that I do religiously. I am in Christ, and I welcome that. And because I'm in Christ, verse 9, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from this law-keeping that I was constantly trying to do, but it's that which comes through faith in Christ. It's a righteousness from God that depends on faith. Luther spoke of this as an alien righteousness. It's alien to me. It's not any righteousness I can do. It's given to me by God simply by faith. And Paul says, this is what I have in Christ. And it supersedes any righteousness I could muster up. 
Then he says, I have this new pursuit. Verse 9, I'm found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, that I would know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now note this, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his what? Sufferings, becoming like him in his what? Why do you think he's saying that? I want to know Christ, and I want to know the, his resurrection power living in me, that I would be sharing in his sufferings and like him in death. Who did he see like that? Stephen. I think he's got Stephen in his mind. And he's saying, that guy had the resurrection power of Christ in him. He shared in Christ's sufferings. He was like Jesus in his death. And he's saying, and just like Jesus' death was like a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying, but it produces a crop, he's saying Stephen's death is the same. He died and gave himself for his Savior and suffered with him, but that seed germinated in my heart. And he got to me. And Paul's saying, oh, that I would be like that. And he tried really hard, didn't he? Like everywhere he went, he preached boldly, and they persecuted him, and they dragged him out of the city, and they left him for dead. And he's like, ah, it didn't work that time. I'm going to get up and go to this next city. I don't think he really thought that. But, but this is what's driving him. I'm, I'm in Christ, and that's all that matters. Verse 11, he says, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. By that, he doesn't mean I'm, I'm trying to do all of this to earn resurrection. What he's saying is people that truly are in Christ, they have faith in Christ, they suffer with Christ, they die like Christ, those people will be resurrected. Those people will be raised like Christ, is what he's saying. So now, I come back to you tonight, and I ask you, what is your religious identity? We can be proud of a lot of religious things. I'm a conservative. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Bible believer. I'm very strict. We can be proud about those things, and that can tend to be our identity. That's what I am. I mean, I'm not like those other people. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But if that's really your identity, I just ask you, are you really in Christ? Because that's our identity. I am in Jesus Christ, and he has fulfilled all of those things for me. And I find my identity in him. Here's how one man put this. He said, men bid me live in duty, in truth, in purity, in love. They do well. 
He says, here's, here's what men bid me to do in my religious identity. Do your duty, believe the truth, live purely, love. He says, all of those things are good. They do well. But the gospel does better. Calling me to live in Christ and to find in him the enjoyment of all that I would possess and the realization of all that I will become. He says, our religion is not about doing and duty and our identity is in these things. The gospel does better in that it reminds me that I'm in Christ and I enjoy relationship with God through Christ. And it reminds me that I will become like Jesus Christ. It was actually Bernard who gave that in a series of lectures in Oxford in 1864. And he nailed it. So, beloved, what is your religious identity? Are you proud to be in Christ? And that's what defines you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Thank you.